The hymn we just sang, Amazing Grace, is one of the best known and most beloved hymns of all time, I suppose. Uh, did you see in the news recently, uh, our President Obama attended a, a funeral for some of those victims who were shot in a church service in South Carolina, and in the course of the service, President Obama sang this song. That's just how well known it is. Uh, even the president knew it by heart and sang it with the congregation as he was leading them. The song is written by, or was written by John Newton. See his name up here? John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Kind of an interesting story. John Newton was a rough British sailor. He eventually became, had a hard life, but eventually became the captain of a slave trading ship. And in the course of him captaining that ship with slaves, uh, they encountered a terrible storm. In 1748, they encountered a terrible storm on the sea, and it looked uh, like there was a great high probability that the ship would be sunk. The story is told that he prayed to God, and he credited God with saving them, and the sh him and the ship, in that terrible storm. It changed his life. Many people think that this song has some reference to that occasion when they were in a terrible storm on the sea and were spared. Later on, when he retired from his sailing, he became a Methodist preacher, and that's when he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. We want to talk about God's grace this morning. It truly is an amazing thing. I'll stop here for just a minute to thank everybody for being present been mentioned several times by several different ones of you this morning. What a beautiful day it is, uh, and it's certainly that. And what a great privilege we have to be together to worship God. We need to acknowledge that as well. We're glad that you're here. We have visitors, and we're grateful for our visitors. Please come back every time you have a chance to be here. If you have any questions about what we're doing, what we're teaching here at College View, we encourage you to ask those questions so that we can try to give you a Bible answer. We're very much about doing what the Bible says. We want to have book, chapter, and verse authority for all of our practices. A thus saith the Lord serves as the basis for our decisions as a, as a congregation and why we do what we do. And we hope we will be able to explain to you from the Bible uh, the answer to any question that you might have. Let's talk about God's amazing grace. And the first thing that we would point out is the fact that certainly God's grace is truly amazing. There's just no doubt about that. I believe as Christians we should very often reflect upon the grace of God and what He has done for us. When we're studying grace, often we define grace as the unmerited favor of God. Now get the idea of that. God showed favor on us, but it was unmerited or undeserved. We didn't do anything that would have, that would have deserved Him doing for us what He did. When we think about all that He has provided for us, and especially when we think about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His horrendous death on the cross, the, the blood that was shed as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And all of that, of course, we did not deserve. We did not merit that. That was unmerited favor from God. Uh, and so when we think about grace, the, unmet, the unmerited favor of God, what a fitting thing it is to discuss, to think about, to contemplate on all that He has done for us. God's grace is amazing. But I want to take a little bit different tack in our lesson this morning. Having said that and acknowledge it, wouldn't want to do anything to diminish 
the, the, the claim of amazing, how amazing God's grace is. But I want to maybe catch your attention by saying God's grace is amazing, but it's not that amazing. Now, I'll have to explain what I mean by that. Unfortunately, uh, many have perverted the truth about God's grace to try to incorporate things that God's grace does not cover. And so God's grace is amazing, but it is not all so amazing as some would lead us to believe. And let me just get right into it and give you an example of what we mean. God's grace is truly amazing, but not so amazing that we don't have to worry about sin. Most people think that if you just live a pretty decent life, you know, pretty good moral person, maybe uh, you have your, your lapses, maybe you have your own particular vices, but you don't get engaged in the big black sins that some people do. You know, some people are doing just horrible things. And I, I don't do those horrible things. I'm a pretty decent person. And since I'm a pretty decent person, I don't have to worry about much else. God's grace will cover all the rest. Apparently, some people in Rome thought that, and Paul addressed that when he wrote in Romans chapter 6, beginning verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? This statement was written to Christians. And apparently some of those Christians thought, I don't really have to worry a whole lot about sin in my life because there's grace. And actually, in a way, if I sin more, it just gives opportunity for God to show His grace more. And, and so Paul addressed that kind of thinking here. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Absolutely not. Uh, we cannot disregard the significance of sin because God is a gracious God. Later in that same chapter, Romans 6, verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Again, he says, God forbid. The law that he's talking about here, of course, is the law of the Old Testament Mosaic period. We're not under that law anymore. We're under the grace. We live under a new system. But that new system, he says, does not say that we should just not worry about sin at all. Because we've got grace. And so it is a false notion to say that because of God's grace, we don't have to worry about sin. In fact, in Titus 2, in the text that Wade read for us earlier, beginning verse 11, we find out that Paul says that grace actually teaches us to stop sinning and to live righteous lives. Notice, the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Teaching us what? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so it is a big mistake to interpret God's amazing grace to mean we don't have to worry about sin. God's grace is amazing, but it's not that amazing. We still need to be concerned about the horribleness of sin and its consequences in our life. God's grace is amazing, but it's not so amazing that sinners don't have to do anything to be saved. This is a popular idea in the religious world, you know, basically... Well, you really, if you have to do anything at all, you have to believe, but maybe even belief is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God, perhaps they say. But at most, all you have to do to believe is, all you have to do to be saved is believe, and not much more than that. Sinners don't really have anything to do in order to be saved. A favorite verse used to sort of develop that notion is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As we've studied this passage many times in the past, we have pointed out that when it talks about works, 
and that our salvation is not of works, the, the kind of works that he's describing are actually identified in the next phrase, lest any man should boast. There are no works, the kind of by which I could boast about it, that will lead to my salvation. So what Paul's talking about here, the kind of works that he's describing are works of merit, whereby I could imagine in my mind that I earned my salvation. I deserve it because of what I did. God owes it to me. There are no such works as that. All who are saved will be saved by the grace of God, His unmerited favor. And so by grace, we are saved. And, and we agree with that. We agree very much by, by the fact that we're saved by grace. And, and that's an important concept. And as we were saying at the start of the lesson, we need to dwell on that. We need to meditate upon it, think about it very often. But we deny the conclusion that sinners don't have to do anything to be saved because of God's grace. That's just not so. If we went to the book of Acts, very often we talk about the book of Acts as the book of conversions. In the book of Acts, we read the story of many, many people who were converted to Christ. <clears throat> and as those conversion stories are laid out there for us, very often those who were touched with the gospel message asked the question as they did on the day of Pentecost. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what shall we do? They asked. Well, they, they, they knew of their lost condition. What shall we do, they asked. When Saul of Tarsus uh, saw the Lord on the road to Damascus, he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said to him, Rise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Notice, Saul of Tarsus asked, What must I do? In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas taught the Philippian jailer, the Philippian jailer came in with a light. She sprang in, came trembling, fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, my point here is that the question recurs throughout the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the book of conversions. It tells about what people did to be saved. In the course of those conversion stories, the people ask over and over again. We see them asking, what must I do? Now, if there's nothing for man to do, the answer would be nothing, right? There's nothing you must do. But the fact that the question in all these texts is asked and then goes on to give an answer to the question, what must I do, proves there's something that man must do to be saved, right? There's lots of ways that we could approach that question, but it's a false idea of God's grace to say that because of His grace, sinners don't have to do anything to be saved. God's grace is amazing, but it's not so amazing that strict obedience to God's law is unnecessary. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he started out by talking about grace. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He started out with that, and if I counted correctly, 20 times... In First and Second Corinthians, 20 times Paul mentions the grace of God. And so clearly that was an obvious emphasis of his teaching, as it ought to be ours. We need to talk a lot and be very appreciative of God's grace. It's, an, it's such a vital, important thing. But even though Paul started his message to the Corinthian church with mentioning grace, he never omitted Stressing the importance of obedience. In chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. 
Chapter 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you whether you be obedient in all things. Now, again, what we're stressing here is Paul talked a lot about grace to the church at Corinth. And in fact, in almost all of his epistles, he mentioned the grace of God. But as he was writing to those Christians and he wanted them to have God's grace fully in their lives, he never omitted stressing, you've got to keep the commands, right? Some people would have us believe that grace and commandments are at odds with one another. That they're contradictory to one another. That grace and the idea of keeping commandments don't go together. They very much go together. And so what we're saying here is God's grace, the wonderfulness of God's grace, does not mean that we can omit the importance of obedience to His laws and His commands. God's grace is amazing, but it's not so amazing that doctrinal differences are unimportant. Uh, a lot of people have the idea, you're familiar with this because you talk to your friends in the community a lot, you're maybe even relatives in your own family, and they, they convey the idea that you just believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and the next guy can believe what he wants to believe. It really doesn't matter. Everything is fine. Because grace will effectively cover those differences between our beliefs and practice. You have your doctrine, I have mine, somebody else has theirs. But that doesn't matter. God's such a gracious God that it just sort of blankets that whole situation and there is no problem. What about that? Well, I think every New Testament book that mentions grace also mentions the importance of doctrine. One of our memory verse passages is from Galatians chapter 1, beginning verse 6. We know this text very well. Paul says to the Galatians, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Notice, these people had been called into the grace of Christ. That's a great thing, right? But now there was a problem because they were be, being troubled by some who were coming along and teaching different doctrines. You see that? So here were people who were in the grace of Christ, but they were now being troubled because someone was teaching different doctrine to them. And so Paul says, anybody who comes, even if I myself come there, he said, and would teach you something different than that which you have already learned, let them be accursed. If an angel from heaven came and preached another doctrine, let them be accursed. To all those who suggest that grace means that doctrine is unimportant or insignificant, and that we can, that we can just overlook and, and completely disregard any doctrinal differences we have, that's just not right. God's grace is amazing, but it's not that amazing. You see my point? We would also argue that God's grace is amazing, but it's not so amazing that baptism becomes non-essential for our salvation. You know, there are so many passages that teach the necessity of baptism. We've tried to memorize several of them, but there are so many different passages that stress the necessity of baptism. 
What's amazing, now we're talking about amazing grace this morning. If you want to talk about something amazing, considering all the New Testament passages are that stress the necessity of baptism, it's amazing that anyone would conclude otherwise. That's what's amazing about baptism. But there's actually one passage I want to stress in your thinking this morning, one passage that refutes the whole idea that baptism and grace are at opposition to one another, that baptism somehow would be contradictory to the notion of grace. The passage I have in mind, I want you to look at Titus chapter 3, beginning verse 4. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, it says, But after that the kindness and love of our God, our, uh, the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, there's grace. Here's In this passage, it talks about being justified by God's grace. It also mentions God's kindness and love. It also talks about His mercy. All of those things are so important, right? All those things so vital. We, we, wouldn't, have a, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have a chance. There, was, there would be no way that we could be saved without God's grace, His kindness and love and His mercy. So this, this passage talked about all that, but this passage also talks about the washing of regeneration. And I want to suggest to you that that is absolutely baptism. The washing of regeneration for us is being baptized in water for the remission of sins. Now, you could be baptized a million times in water, and if it wasn't for His grace and His kindness and His love and His mercy, that baptizing, no matter how many times you did, it wouldn't amount to anything. But because God has shown His grace through Jesus Christ, our Savior, by the way, since God has showed us His grace, His kindness, love, and mercy in sending His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, then through the washing of regeneration, we have this great hope of salvation. But grace does not discount the necessity of baptism for the remission of sins. Finally, let me suggest to you that grace is amazing. God's grace is overwhelmingly amazing. I think God's grace is such that we can't even fully comprehend it all. I'm not sure our feeble mortal minds can come close to grasping the amazingness of God's grace. God's grace is amazing. But it's not so amazing that it means our eternal salvation is assured. What we're talking about here is the false doctrine that has come up in the religious world over the last several centuries that suggests that people once saved are always saved. Once saved, always saved. You've heard of that. And you no doubt have friends, relatives, neighbors who hold to that idea of once saved, always saved. Sometimes referred to as the impossibility of apostasy. Or other people might refer to it as the security of the believer. But the idea is that once you have become saved, nothing can happen and you cannot so sin as to be eternally lost. I want to tell you, that's just not true of the Scriptures. You're aware of that. God's gracious, for sure, but not so gracious that our eternal salvation is assured irregardless of what we do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, We then, as workers together with Him, beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Notice, you could receive the grace of God, but then it not be effective. You could receive the grace of God, but then it be in vain. 
That would suggest that you could be lost even after having received the grace of God, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Notice, the, the, a man might fail of the grace of God. Uh, could be defiled. Uh, suggest again that once we're saved, doesn't mean that we're always saved. The verse that we think of probably first of all is Galatians 5, verse 4. Another of our memory verses says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. As we well know, this passage was written to those who were trying to bring over certain aspects of the law of Moses and demand that Christians observe certain aspects of the Old Testament law. Paul combated that throughout this epistle. But he just made the point, if you're going to try to be justified by that Old Testament law, then you are fallen from grace. To fall from grace means that you were once in grace, right? You can't fall from something that you haven't been in. And so here was a clear statement from Paul. You can fall from grace. Our religious friends who teach once saved, always saved, who who speak of the security of the believer or the impossibility of apostasy, they can't get around the statement that Paul made there that it's possible to fall from grace. And so God's grace is amazing, but not so amazing that our eternal salvation is assured. God's amazing grace, it, it really is. And I, I don't want the takeaway from this lesson to be that we're downplaying the significance of God's grace. It's overwhelming. We've talked about it often in the past and no doubt will many times in the future if the Lord wills. But our point here is that people, unfortunately, have perverted the notion of God's grace. They've tried to twist it, and they've tried to make it cover things that it doesn't cover. And we need to be aware of that. Amazing grace. What about you? Have you allowed God's amazing grace to affect you? Uh, Have you become a Christian? Have you learned the truth and been obedient to it? If not, we would urge you to make that decision without delay. The simple gospel plan of salvation is hear the truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, we're ready to assist you. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, remember we said you can fall from His grace. Come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Thank you, Lord. Yes, I'm the Savior, trying to follow us.